You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm Rob McClure. Dense, programmatic, spontaneous. Dr. Christopher Walzak is a professor of music at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. His music has been commissioned by various ensembles, including the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra, Apollo Chamber Players, and members of 8th Blackbird. Upcoming premieres include a new piece for the Little Giant Chinese Chamber Orchestra. This is the first time I've actually had a person sitting across from me, which is kind of nice. So, Chris, you're in China for the first time. What are what are you what have been your initial thoughts about just being in China? Well, it is completely new to me. I have traveled, I've been through Europe, but I haven't seen anything like this. So, I'm sort of taking in the culture for the first time directly, enjoying every second of it. It's more crowded than I imagine, <laughs> if I can say that. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's very, very colorful. There's a lot of, uh, going on around you at any given time. Uh, so far, um, all the, the people that we've just kind of passed and dealt with have been wonderful and, and just sort of um, you know, kind and friendly. And so, so far, so good. So last night we had, um, we had a new music concert, and um, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Lucas Wong, he played one of my piano pieces, but he also played your pieces called Proto Passages. And I kind of wanted to talk about that piece a little bit. It's just a, uh, it's a short piano piece, like you said, about four minutes or so. Yeah, four minutes. And um, you gave a lecture that was uh, actually really... Um, insightful as to how you put that piece together, and I'm just wondering, can you can you talk about the some of the methods you use to to put this piece together? Because I think as a listener, if you just take the take the aural effect of the piece, I don't know that you would necessarily connect all the things that are going on in the piece to what what went into making it. So could you talk about it a little bit? Yeah, sure. Proto Passages was sort of turning a, a corner for me. I'd been composing, you know, for like seven or eight years before that, and had hit, I wouldn't say a dead end, but I, was, I wasn't happy with the music I was writing at the time, and I sort of reinvented myself with that piece. And so there were two criteria um, dangling in front of me as I was conceiving of that piece. And one was, um, was density and the amount of information. At that at that time, around 2008, 9, or 10, when I was thinking of, of these things, um, I was convinced, and sort of still am, that we as humans are going to take information in at more at a, at a more and more rapid and more and more sort of um, um, like massive rate. And I think that, you know, in 10 years, we'll be able to process even more musical information or entertainment information or, or however you want to look at the stimulus that's coming in. So it's a really dense piece with a lot of stuff happening a lot and fast. And that's the kind of music I wanted to write. I'm going for that. Now, that doesn't work so well for every listener. There are people who become overwhelmed when a piece of music is just jammed with musical information. But it's the direction I wanted to go. And I was very happy with it. Uh, the music I like the most is music that I that sustains many, many listens, That pieces that I keep coming back to. And every time I listen to the piece, I hear more and more. And that's the kind of music I wanted to write. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was that I felt that my music and the music of a lot of my peers at the time wasn't really... Uh, wasn't sort of going anywhere. It wasn't, it wasn't taking the listener anywhere. 
And I felt that the music of, you know, the great classical or romantic masters did a better job of taking the listener to sort of a place or taking them somewhere or taking them on a sort of a spatial journey than the music of, uh, of my peers, which was often music that sort of um, utilized sonorities and then transformed those sonorities or transposed them or just kind of worked with materials in a way that we were all trained. But there was no sense of sort of long-range motion over the course of a piece. And I was aiming for that and had hoped to do that with proto-passages. So you said you you said that you, before this piece, you had kind of come to a roadblock or could, what what was it about, like, what was it about your music that you that made you finally kind of say, uh, enough is enough, I've got to change? Yeah, well, well, like I said, I would listen to my pieces or hear them performed in a, in a concert hall, and I would say, well, there's lots of great stuff going on on the surface, but it was missing sort of um, a, a real... It, it sort of covered all the bases of composition on the surface and sort of getting into the, the, the depth of of where art can go, but I didn't have like an ur or like a, a giant sort of um, an arc to the piece or a, a backbone that really um, was sort of the ultimate germinal blueprint for a piece. I didn't have this that, that essence there, and as strange and abstract as that, that is, that's what I was looking for, and that's what I, I feel like I found when, when I wrote Proto Passages. So what's the, what's the backbone of Proto Passages then? Well, it... it um, is set up harmonically so that I, I view the harmonic areas that I, I spent a great deal of time sort of setting up. And harmonic regions are, that's, a, that's an idea that goes back to, you know, like as, as early as Schoenberg and his chart of the regions, much later uh, transformation theory that talks about a piece of music taking um, its form from path through sort of a spatial network of all possible configurations of harmony. And so Proto Passages does exactly that. I set up um, harmonic regions, and the piece moves through sort of a harmonic space through those regions. Uh, The first half does it in one way, and the second half of the piece does it in a way that's very similar, has a very similar spatial shape um, when it comes to the long arc or the backbone or the like the global harmonic motion of the piece. I know this is kind of esoteric and hard to understand <laughs> if you're not non-composer, but composers kind of get this, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely.
you and I were at Rice together. Yes. And I've I've been able to um, some of the other composers I've already interviewed. We went to the we went to institutions, but at different times. Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, we we've talked about this a lot, but I'm always curious as to the opinion of someone else on the place, you okay. know. So this is, this is terrible wording of this question, but. I mean, basically, what what was your what did you take away from Rice? What was your experience? Well, I'll just say straightforwardly, with uh, you know, not shortchanging the University of Wisconsin Madison, where I did two degrees. That Rice University was was the greatest was the greatest choice I ever made was to go to that school, and I can't say enough good things about that institution. Uh, any composer would be lucky if they were allowed to study there, not just because of the awesome facilities, but um, the the faculty are extremely diverse and are deeply invested in their students. And I felt that anyway. And not only that made a, a huge difference, but I, and it, it might not be true now, but when I was there with you, there was a really eclectic and really engaged uh, community of composers at the time. Yeah, and that's something that... I have never seen, well, I have never found anywhere else. I've never found a group of, let's say, 10, 15 mm-hmm. of us that consistently felt like a community. And I don't, I don't know what it is. No, I've never seen it anywhere. I'm sure, I'm sure it exists. In yeah, there. of course. There, there are people that would be listening <laughs> to this and saying, man, no, on my school, we had a great group of composers, but I didn't experience that. And I've traveled to many universities as a guest or just checking them out, and I didn't see that there. But we're, what we were doing at Rice was wonderful. We talked about music when we ate lunch. We talked about our ideas when we had coffee. We talked about it when we were drinking beer. We got together, thanks, thanks to you and what you organized for group listening together, uh, comments. It was just uh, it was so vital, and ideas were always just flying around and refracting off of one another. And we each had our areas of specialty, which was great. There were people like you, uh, who were just you know really really hot when it came to electronic music and the technology, and there were more philosophical thinkers. It just it was just a wonderful group of people to throw ideas around with, and it greatly influenced you know, you know the rest of my musical life. Yeah, I felt like the um, the times that we all spent at you know some place like Valhalla, you know outside drinking beer, really casual. Those were the some of the times that were more formative in in terms of like getting getting your eye getting your ideas cl- clear and also you know getting getting a response on them getting feedback on them and in many ways and i th- you know i think this is true in a lot of places in many ways those were as important as what you got in the lesson or what you got in the classroom yeah i mean absolutely the community was um, you know just Amazing. It, it was, and I feel like you know the the classroom and the institution. That's a place for for you to be fairly formal. I mean, this is the academy, and you need to make sense, and your presentations need to be uh, well crafted, and and it needs to be pretty airtight because it's a very serious institution. But of course, the downtime, um, you're not done thinking and talking about those things. It's just like kind of sort of going to the to the wood shop, and you know, instead of talking about it in the in the formal way that we did in a class, you know, we'd go 
out at night and talk about it a little more informally and sort of shore up our ideas uh, as to what, you know, regarding what we might talk about or do formally in the coming weeks or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what, I mean, the one of the reasons why you're here in China right now is because we've got this project with um, basically Rice University and the um, Little Giant Chinese uh Little Giant Chinese Chamber Orchestra. Right. And so we we are going to be traveling to Taiwan to meet up with our uh, two former professors, us being alumni, and then there are also um, current uh, doctoral students doing this, doing this project with us. So since we're going to meet up with our uh, two former professors, let's just talk about them. Shi Hui Chen and Kurt Stallman. Yeah, I had the opportunity to work with both of them, of course, at Rice. It's wonderful. And again, people uh, coming from way different perspectives, which is exactly what you want when you're, when you're learning about composition. Um, it's hard for me to say, you know, pinpoint exactly what I learned from both of them, but uh, Shi Wei Chen really sort of... Sh- it, she, she taught me to slow down a little bit, which I needed to do at the time. And to to realize what I'd put on the page and what was being said without moving on too quickly, which is something that I tend to do. And I just got done saying that I, I like a great deal of musical information, and I still do. But that didn't mean that I, I didn't need to know what had what had already been happen, happening in the music um, and the effect that that had on the listener. So she was really able to sort of dial me in and get me to know exactly what I was what I was saying and how efficiently I was saying it or not efficiently and just really shaped the pace of of um, my music and Kurt Stallman is just he's he's such a, a deep thinker a conceptual thinker and so really for any time I spent talking about music with him was like stepping outside of you know your own musical body and just like looking down at what you're doing from above and rethinking it from a completely objective perspective and sort of coming out of what you're doing and um, and sort of becoming one with it at the same time as as looking at the object. So uh, he was the kind of person that could say something and just either make me say, I'm really into my piece, or no, I've got to start over. I'm, I'm not approaching this the right way. So, so many great things from both of them. Yeah, I mean, Kurt, for me, was... I still look at him... Uh, as uh, I still look at him this way, he truly is an artist, you know, and he comes to music with that, with that idea, with that, um, with that lens. I think he thinks like an artist. I think he crafts his materials like an artist. And I mean, that, that, I'm using the word artist to just mean bigger than music. Big, yeah, exactly. I bigger. Mean, he's, he's he's bigger than his music. His music is bigger than music, and the way he thinks about it is is bigger than music, and it's bigger than art. Uh, he really, um, it's an it's an integration with life itself and, and vitality itself, and he's his music sort of grabs uh, pieces of his life experiences and and then converts them into art and it's just yeah, it's just exactly. amazing. And that's one of the I think that's one of the things I took away from him, Shi Hui Chen. She, I mean, I had, I, she was the very first teacher that I uh, had lessons with at Rice, and she was also the last uh, teacher before I moved on to my dissertation, uh, whom I did with uh, Art Gottschalk, or that I did with Art Gottschalk. Um, 
And Shihui, so I, I only had a, a semester each time with her, but she, what she gave me in each one of those semesters, she caught me at exactly the right time. I needed exactly what she had to give me. You know, she pushed me so, so much in the very first semester. And in the, uh, in the last semester, you know, I, I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know what I needed at that point. Mm-hmm. I always came away from lessons with her just feeling like that's exact that's exactly what I needed. She knows, you know, she could and she she pushed me harder than any other teacher has ever pushed me, right. but yeah. I just I was just so appreciative of that. And I look at the pieces that I wrote with her mm-hmm. and they're different in a way than than the pieces I wrote with uh, some of the other teachers at Rice. And I there's not there's not really a thing I can put my finger on. Yeah. But they have a different quality about them. Yeah, and, and that's the scary part is when you have great teachers like Shuei and Kurt and again the rest of the faculty at Rice, these yeah. are these are great teachers and, and not just invested in their amazing careers, but really invested in mentorship too, which was wonderful. But when you use the scary thing is you know you you learn these things and you internalize them and you hope they take. Sure, you know, you look yeah. back at your pieces and say that something great was happening when I was studying with her, but it's kind of like, you know, did I, did I carry that with me? Right. I, yeah. I hope so, you know, because yeah. it gets so, it's so, like I said, it's so esoteric and it gets so, so deep that, you know, you want to make sure you sort of hang on to whatever that, that pulse was or whatever that, um, those ideas were without just sort of reverting back to your norm, you know, or whatever that is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So when we were at Rice, you were um, you were a year ahead of me uh, in the doctoral program, and um, one of your one of your colleagues at the time um, in that year of doc, uh, doctoral students was uh, Sonia Harrison, right, as a violinist. Yeah, and you wrote uh, you wrote her a violin concerto. Yeah, and again, I hate to keep talking about the school, but I mean, it really all comes out of the school. They have the most, you know, tremendous performers there. It's sort of like the orchestral training ground of the of the best performers yeah. in the country and even the world. And so these people are all your colleagues, and they're they're going to go off to become amazing concert musicians and touring people and professors. And, and they have, and they you have. Know, we've already we've already started seeing that that a lot of our colleagues are doing these just amazing things in the world of music right now. And it's like, oh yeah, I got a beer with him at Valhalla once, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, oh, yeah. I, I knew him before he was huge, you right. know. But <laughs> but they were so, they're so willing to um, to help. Uh, create what it is the composers were trying to create for the most part there, and Sonia was no exception. She's a really dear friend of mine. I can't say enough about her. She's played so much of my music, but um, I, I can't even begin to express how wonderful and beneficial it is to everybody when you become very, very close, um, when, when good, good composers become very, very close with good performers, and that bond, that, that relationship is there where the pretension is gone. Uh, it's different than walking into a group of musicians that you know, you're commissioned and you get there and you shake hands and you know, who knows what, what personalities really lie beneath the surface. Right. You're just there to do the job and they, you hope they play it well and you hope they like it and they hope you're pretty cool. And um, and then you you have well, you, you have pre- dinner. You are pretty cool. Well, I mean, well, I'm in, I'm in cool company right now. <laughs> We're cool, but but uh, you know, like you, we're super cool. We're doing well, guys. We're doing a composure podcast. Yeah, we're in our basement right now, and um, <laughs> we hope you get the signal. Anyway, uh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, 
And Goth Talk is coming up next. But um but but uh yeah, I mean it's just it's so much better when when you have such a relationship with the performer that they can literally say to you, I hate that, you know? Or I'm not gonna play that. Was there I mean, with uh with this piece with the violin concerto, was there um, what was the collaborative relationship with Sonia? It was, we were working, we, were, we, we had this, this vision that we were going to create this new model for how composers and performers would work together, which was that, you know, I'd just constantly talk about the piece with her, show her things, ask her to play things, and she would have a, a great amount of input into how the piece went, and we did that um, as much as we could. Of course, you know, we still come from different worlds as far as composition and performance, but it was the closest I had ever worked with somebody. And like I said, when someone can play it and go, oh my gosh, I love that, and they're not just saying it, because you've already heard them say ten times, I don't like that part. Right. And, and you, know, you know you've got a relationship, you know, and you can have fights. I mean, well, I hope, you know, I hope Sonia's okay with this. You know, we would have fights, we wouldn't talk to each other for a little while, and we'd make up, and then we'd go back to the music, and those are the kind of relationships that are missing typically from classical musicians and composers of contemporary music because we all sort of put on this face and we, we want everything to go smoothly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, all, all real, you know, really great art has to have, you know, it has to have some, some conflict and some friction and a visceral working out of ideas. And that's what we achieved, she and I and a lot of my other um, colleagues, performers, with that closeness and dedication to each other through life as artists, we have the sort of bond that we can really produce um, art that we're all we're all proud of, and not really not worry if there's sort of a, a you know if we have any problems. Problems are a part of the process.
So you said that, you know, you and Sonia kind of come from different worlds in terms of music. How did uh, how did that manifest itself in the piece? You know, um, it's a it's a concerto for violin and and then chamber chamber orchestra. orchestra. So as a concerto, you know, was it uh, don't take this the wrong way, but was it more like classically structured as a concerto or, you know, is that something that that you kind of turned on its head or, or how, how does that you work? You mean like sort of traditional ways concertos go? Yeah, or? kind of. I mean, the, the role of the, the soloist and the, um, uh, and the accompanying forces or the orchestra, you know, how did, how, how did the piece really gel itself together based on it was really the two of you, you know, collaborating to make this work? Right. Well, so there's no getting around that a violin concerto is going to be an orchestra playing some stuff, and then a soloist that's just kind of shredding circles around everyone yeah. else because that—that's what they do, you know. And and that's there was that this piece was no exception, of course. I mean, Sonia was the, was the star, and she was going to play music that was way harder than everyone else. But you know, with with her input, you know, she could literally say to me, you know, uh, it's not, things that things that I I might not think of as a composer, because, you know, we tend to think of, of our structures and our aesthetic and where we're going, and they think of things like, well, if I play it that high, you know, and the trumpet's, you know, up there too, oh, you'll hear it, but I really don't, she could say, you know, I really don't want to compete with that. Okay, mm-hmm. well, I'll do something about that. That's not the typical way that composers and performers work. The composer just from the ivory tower sort of sends the score down to the, to the player and to the right. masses, but, you know, and then I could say to her if I wanted to, you know, I want the trumpet there. We'll talk about that for a few minutes, something like that, and one of us would win. But in the, <laughs> but the, in the end, it was much more democratic than your average piece, and I was very happy about that. And one of the reasons is, is this. If you ever want a performer to be really, really, really invested in what you're doing as a composer, just give them some autonomy. You know, then it's they, it was, we, I consider this piece ours and not mine, which is a tough thing on a composer ego. Um, but I mean, in the end, I mean, I wrote all the notes, and I'm the one who had to do sure. the copying, and, and and right. But but yeah. she she had a stake in it, you know. If if not like a literal notes on the page stake, she she had the um, the emotional stake and the stake in the time that it took to develop this piece. Right. And the other thing is, no matter how great we are as composers, we can't think of every last. We can't consider things from the standpoint of, say, a virtuoso violinist if we're not a virtuoso violinist. So when someone is deeply invested in the piece, you get much more out of them when it comes to what, what they're—they start saying things like, you know, if you're looking for this, don't do this. How about if I do this instead? And that happened about a billion times. And then as a composer, you get to say yes or no, but at least you were made aware of something that you hadn't considered before. And you l- probably learned a lot. 
in that in that process. Yeah, I mean, like I went about in, playing the violin. I mean, I went else. into it, of course, thinking as a seasoned composer that I'm a master of the violin. Sure, and right. <laughs> but of course, you know, every step of the way was just like, oh my gosh, you know, I thought that was a lot harder, a lot easier, and look at the way her finger did that, and you know, she'd walk over to me and stick the violin in my face and just say, "See, you know," and, <laughs> and so, so yeah, look at this. <laughs> yeah, like I got to put it here, and I'm like, you're about to hit me in the nose, you know. But, <laughs> but uh, and when it came to the cadenza, that was really wonderful because traditionally a cadenza is something that the performer kind of improvised or made up and so she didn't want to do that outright but for the cadenza we literally sat down together i'd write she'd play and say hey you know maybe this this is so that that was a complete group effort which was just wonderful
Do you think those types of, I mean, this happened while you were both students. Right. Have you had an experience like that since you have, have exited Rice and have been been out there, you know, in in the world and then in in the world of academia after that? Like, have you had that experience again? Yeah, I, I have because I go after it. And I mm-hmm. have because the, the people that I met at Rice or met through those people are, are dedicated to this principle as well. So another really dear friend of mine who went to Rice at the same time that we did, pianist Andrew Stopey, uh, same who you thi- wrote you wrote proto passages for right correct? right yeah. well we've done many piano works since then out in the world um one of we had i had a, was fortunate enough he played he premiered one of my works in carnegie hall he played it on national public radio and and the, it didn't end when school ended i still went to see him we hung out put i put music in front of him he would he would kind of talk about what he was looking for and I would I would consider those things so we worked closely like that and then of course when you teach at a university like both you and I do I mean you have colleagues and those people you see every day so that's another opportunity to so the only situation in which you work where you it's just kind of like a cold call composition are when you you know you submit something for a, a call for scores or a competition or you're commissioned by a group you don't know yeah. but you still have a chance to, to get to know them if they're decent people and collaborate it's always there if you want to if you want to bridge the gap, I think. I I think you're right. I think it's always there. I just find that right now, everyone is so busy. Yeah. yeah. You know, like every everyone is doing a thousand things. Okay, they're doing this commissioning project. They're going to do this tour. They're also teaching. They also have, a, you know, a hundred private students that they're doing. And it's like to be able to, you know... And it's like for me, especially being over being over here, and I'm still I'm still writing quite a bit of music for people that are back in the states. Mm-hmm. So I don't really have that opportunity to just be in a room with someone and to have them shove a violin in my face and say, "Look, this is how it's going to work." So that I mean, w- what you're describing the collaboration with Sonia and the, the collaboration with uh, with uh, Stopey, you know, that is. Uh, really nice to think about you know yeah it's great you know like i said really if you're at a university you know your colleagues are sort of the only outlet for doing that and i teach at southern illinois university in carbondale in the united states and um same thing there i've got a number of faculty members you know there we all know this Rob, there are faculty members who don't want to touch new music yeah, and they're too busy to do anything. And, you know, they, they have a bunch of TV shows they want to watch when they get home at night. <laughs> um, but then there are the other ones, the, the jewels who like are the lost. Peop- <laughs> like lost. Like, you know, know listen like, to some drive shaft. Some, yeah, drive shaft, man. You know, can't get, can't get this. I am drive shaft. No, I am, I'm drive shaft. <laughs> But like, um, you know, they're great. They're you'll get the jewel colleagues who are just like, you know what, write me some music and, and let's go out and let's talk. And and that's when the opportunity comes to really get 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 close and to and to join forces to make music together in the world. Right. I have. Um, I mean, th- this piece is who knows when it's going to happen or if it's going to happen. But I do have this idea to get the colleagues here that I'm really interested in writing music for together and just like almost like a band have a sure. have a weekly time to get together and truly work collaboratively like as almost in a workshop type of setting because I've never done that I've never had the opportunity to to really do that to write for people like in the moment to you know just put a few notes in front of them and try it out 
and you know see what works and really shape together because everyone is so busy. But I think the people I have in mind would be into this. Idea. Yeah, and I'd, I'd go for it because again, like there's like no greater joy than when you're sharing it, and there's there's no greater joy than when everybody's on the same page, you know, and, and working together because this is it's like a dedication that's there, a mass dedication rather than just all for one, one for all, you know, sort of like. Um, you know, army of one out there in the world doing your thing. So I would encourage you to, you know, seize that opportunity any chance you can get. The the violin concerto came uh, chronologically before Proto Passages, correct? Um, let me think about that for a minute. That's a toughie. Proto no, Passages, Proto Passages was from... actually first. Oh, Proto Passages was first. Yeah, that was first. So are there, you know, are there uh, techniques or um, I concepts from proto, proto passages that kind of work its way into the violin concerto? You know, or is it completely different? It, that's completely different. And the violin concerto was a step outside of how I was thinking about music. I needed a little bit of a break from the track I was on. But the other thing is, it's, it's a whole different kind of piece in a way. You know, the, a violin concerto. It's a, it's a, again, it's a weird type of thing to 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 compose because it's again, it's like one person's just just on top of everything else. So I embraced uh, some different tactics there, tactics like you and I as composers have talked about. If I want to talk technically about it, I could summarize sure, yeah. the piece in like five seconds. It's, it's, it's a gigantic uh, specific register set, which is a collection of pitches that is fixed across the entire register of the chamber orchestra, which is very low um, and gets very, sure. very high. And so uh, the way I that, that piece, Sonia is a very... She's. A, I wanted to sort of get her character across, and she's a very convincing person because she's a very persistent person. She is, and yeah. she's a very strong person too. Um, and so I wanted that to come across. So the idea is that the orchestra was sort of trapped in this register set, which isn't an ugly set by any means. It's it's music that I liked, and that the the violin is sort of this. Uh, you have to imagine like time is stopped, and every everyone around you isn't moving, but you're the only one who can move. And so Sonia is that person who's not not contained by that large collection of pitches, and it's her job to sort of free the orchestra from them. And she does that uh, a player at a time, really, or sometimes a group of players. You know, she can sort of swing in, and when she sort of touches what uh, the notes that they're playing, they're suddenly sort of free. So this happens through the first and second movement, and then by the third movement, everybody's free, and it's just mm-hmm. kind of a, like a, a rejoice, like a liberation. And, and that was the concept uh, behind that piece.
very visual concept. Is, is Are you kind of a visual person in a way? I, I'm not sure about uh, visual, but but like... um. But more well, maybe. Sorry, I am a visual person, so I'm interpreting it in kind of a visual way. Yeah, and you could, and, and I, I swear, Rob. I don't. I mean, I don't know exactly how how you work, but I know that that before I write any notes, I usually have blank pieces of paper with all sorts of indiscernible scrawl. Yeah. you know that are shapes and points in the piece where it wanted to do this with a sort of a shorthand. So I'm like really form. I sketch the sort of shape and the form mm-hmm. um, before I even write a note. I mean, I sit down, I tell my students this too, and it's very difficult for them to understand, you know. You sit down and make a list of things that you're trying to do and sit down and sketch out a sort of a, a, a formal plan before you write a note. And a lot of them don't get that, you know, because... because yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and that's... I mean, you, you, can, you can try to teach that as much as possible, but in the end, they, they still come in with, oh, this is my pre-composition, and it's like half a page that is basically oh i want it to be a b a and it's like oh well, come you, on a little bit more yeah you know? i mean it's t- because it's- because working from from that i mean it's like working a, from an outline on a paper right. i mean you immediately give yourself goals that are achievable and they the, and that's why i feel like so many so many young composers young students their music is wandering and it doesn't have like what you said earlier that path through space yeah that's pushing you forward yeah i totally i totally agree we both teach um, students and like when we were younger i mean we probably suffered many of those pit, of pitfalls as well but, yeah but you know i mean you it be, makes me want to become more and more careful as a teacher because it I don't know if it's occurred to you, but when you show a student or you suggest to a student how to think about music, you don't know how much they're going to internalize that and how far through their life they're going to take it or how stuck they'll be considering music in that way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like if someone taught you to think about music in a certain way, I mean, that's probably the way you're going to approach starting a piece every time, right? And as an older composer, you know, we have these, you and I were just talking in the car uh, a little while back about sort of reinvent how how you reinvent yourself, yeah, and that takes time. Like takes time stepping away from the music for a while, and maybe just like start just learning stuff and thinking about things. Because if you go to write, you're going to write in the way that you know how to write. And yeah. if the way you know how to write is like uh, is is kind of similar from piece to piece, that's sort of a track that you can't get out of sometimes. So it, it um, and I feel like when you teach stu- younger students, you know. You don't know how far they're going to take that. You you don't want them to approach every single piece like this is how my teacher told me to start writing. I'm going to write like yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that kind of um, getting in a rut, getting in a track you can't get out of. That's something I not just, but within the last uh, two or three years, that's something that I really had in my in my own writing and my own work. The um, the dissertation, the orchestra piece that I wrote, which I love, I love that piece, but it was also the signal for me mm-hmm. that you need to change. You yeah. need to change how you think, how you, how you work, because the working, the process of writing the piece was just, just a killer. As you know, I mean, it was a dissertation. It had to be done. It had to be certain things. Right. And it, you know, the, of course, there was a lot of pressure. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, because you had to that your entire previous four years is kind of riding on that thing. Absolutely. And when you're under good. time constraints, of course, we, we tend to fall back on the same sort of ideas and the same chops we have. So, I mean, I realize the fact that it uh, that that these outside factors were kind of pushing me in that direction anyway. But there was something about the music itself mm-hmm. that it was just like, okay, I need to be done with this. I have I have gotten as much as many pieces of, as I can out of what I'm doing right now, and totally it's time to change. It. Yeah. And I think that's great. I think sort of shedding that skin and moving on to the next phase of whatever metamorphosis your compositional body is supposed to you know, go through, I think that's huge and crucial. And I think that composers are afraid to do that sometimes, especially if you're successful at doing what you're doing. Mm. You know, and there's a very famous composer, and I'm not going to say his name because anytime I say something pejorative, I don't want that person to know <laughs> no um, problem. what I'm talking about. But, you know, someone once asked this composer, you know, you've been doing the same thing forever, and it, isn't it getting bored to you? And he was like, if you're at a party and you're having a good time, do you stay or do you go? And <laughs> and, and, and I get that, you know, but on the yeah, other yeah. hand, that composer's not going to... Um, at least in the venue or the medium that he's composing in, he's not going to be able to shed that skin that you're talking about and move to a, a higher plane, you know, which we've, yeah. we've seen. I mean, we always chart the great composers through their phases, right? Um, there had to be progress and there had to be growth with all the greats. So, you know, we hope to, you know, do that as well. Can we just call this guy bro poser or something? You know? Sure. Like that yeah. that seems like such a bro thing to say. Hey man, you at the party having a good time? Don't change it up. You know what I mean, brah? Sure, sure, sure. And you know, and it's so it's so funny about those kinds of composers is that they I think they must feel somewhere in there that if they write a piece that's way outside the lines of what they normally do, that the group will get that piece and they'll go, This isn't what we expected. But probably yeah. in all likelihood the group will get the piece and play it. And this is new music we're talking about. So if I were being completely real, I'd say there'd be like, you know, 30 people there and no one would care. <laughs> and it would be done and he'd get paid and they'd go on to the next piece and right. life people would go on. Would, people would clap politely right. and say, interesting, nice piece, you know, but stuff like really, that. Really, there's a, there's a very good chance that maybe half of that group doesn't really like your style and would be pleasantly surprised by this new direction yeah. and maybe be more into it. But, you know... Again, pe- people are afraid sometimes if they're successful to sort of to sort of go outside the lines because this is what this is what their bread and butter's been. So one of your adjectives is programmatic. Does that play into the violin concerto? I mean, you heard it, right? Yeah, that was programmatic. Um, but like, what kind of? I, I would, you know, if I could add adverbs to my adjectives, that, sure. that would help. You know, so I would say sort of like abstractly or spiritually programmatic because mm. I'm not going to write, um, you know, music that the, the program or the informing story is like, you know, someone fell in love and the mother didn't like that person and they killed them and buried the body or something like that. Right. I mean, that's, that's programmatic that's like opera or something. That's a story. Yeah. But these are more of sort of internal spiritual um, you know, sort of either conflicts or or struggles or things like that, almost expressionistic in a way. But you know, I mean, that that can get old too because it's kind of like how many pieces can you write about like inner turmoil, you know? Yeah. Or like right. a, a, or like you know a struggle with a certain temptation that in, that you, that overwhelms you or something. I can imagine music that goes like that and really invokes that. But I I I do those things in my music a lot. So the program and the violin concerto, of course, was that you know the the orchestra is constricted and these are people who need to be liberated. And there's a one one protagonist, the violinist, who does that. That's that's programmatic. That's mm-hmm. yeah. that's a story. But most most of my music 
music, there is a sort of a sort of an inner backstory. Whatever it is I'm going through, or it, it, the the motives or the musical elements can represent people or forces or you know sort of spiritual elements or notions or political things, whatever. But it is very abstract. Mm-hmm. So we're going to end with kind of a big question. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was it that led you to music as something that you wanted to do for the rest of your life? Well, I, I tell this story to a lot, and so it's, it's old to a lot of people who know me. But has it been on a podcast yet? No. I, to the best of yes. my knowledge, this is my first pod- Exclusive. Pod- podcast. I have told this this story on you know, like Houston Public Radio, but uh, damn you know, it, <laughs> which is it's just, uh, but you know there were again there were like fourteen listeners that day anyway. So well, this is a podcast, so you know who knows. <laughs> we're I'm counting on this one going viral. So. Yeah, all right. <laughs> but you know, I, I I I was at one of those like you know sixth grade or no like fourth or fifth grade sleepovers right at a friend's house, and like there was an old piano in the basement and. Um, for some reason, there was blank manuscript paper sitting on it. Nothing but th- that and a, and a pencil. So me and my friend bumbled over there. I think maybe we were in fifth grade, I think. And, and he's like, well, let's write a song. And we couldn't write a song. Neither of us played the piano. We didn't know any music. And that, that we might as well have just doodled on the page. But I looked at those staves. And the thought that really, really got to me was that you can do anything you want there. And when it's done... You know, with that double bar or whatever, um, which I didn't, I didn't know about a double bar back then. <laughs> it's it's done, and you've created this work, and it stands, and it's solid, and it's it's there in time, and it's finished, and it's it's a valid thing. That that idea was so attractive to me, that um, I I think from I don't know that was the seed right there, and so even though it took a few years after that, I started realizing that these sounds we were making were sounds that you could capture with recording or put down on a musical staff. And if you liked them enough, you could preserve them forever. And so um, that, that idea that you, could just, that you could do this and you could create this, and maybe, just maybe, people would really, really be touched by it was, was pretty awesome. But I think that any of us who come up with music and really want to do it like yourself, we go through these phases where we just realize that we are way more into music than everyone else around us. Like yeah. we just, we're listening and we, you know, someone says, well, what should we do tonight? Well, Hey, want to come over and listen to music? And most people didn't, but right. there was this few group of people that could just, just listen to music or make music all night long, mm-hmm. especially in your late teens. So, I mean, once, once that's in you, you know, you're kind of there, you know, you're really, now you're on your way, you know? I remember, I mean, in my own, like you were talking about fourth or fifth grade or something like that. It was about that time, I think, in uh, in my own development that because I didn't uh, I didn't actually start playing music until I was fourteen, fifteen, somewhere in there. Sure. Um, but it was around like fourth or fifth grade, I think, where I was up in my parents' attic and I found my mom's, you know, old. 1960 something acoustic guitar it was a it was a harmony it was there you go yeah it it was a pretty a pretty awful guitar this is kind of a song right now you're writing all right yeah <laughs> it's a country but, song <laughs> but i rem- but i remember like getting it down and being so like oh this is this is so cool like 
you know, because I was already listening to music uh, quite a bit at that time, you know, just pop music and sure, stuff like yeah. that. And I remember uh, my sister, I believe, had the um, the cassette tape to the soundtrack for the movie Reality Bites. Mm-hmm. Remember that movie? And you figured it out on the guitar. No, no? I did not oh. at all. I was listening. The first track on that on side A um, of that cassette was uh, My Sharona by The Knack. I mean, who doesn't like that song? It's a great song. You got you to be a weirdo not to like that yeah. tune, you know? But I I just remember like playing that song over and over and over and then just like beating on the beating on the guitar strings like open strings. I you know, I didn't I didn't know how to do anything, right. but I was it just was like, "Oh my god, this is so cool." I I actually like my my hands bled because I was like going after the guitar so And, and that, that is a, there's a reason for this. There's a that is a moment where what happens is, you know, when you you hear music as a kid, it's ma- it's completely mystical to you. It comes yeah. out of the speakers and it touches you and you like I want to listen to that song over and over again. And all of a sudden you find an instrument and you play something that you've heard on the radio or something and you're the one doing it. And then you that magic is suddenly gone. It's like, you know what? It's not magic. It's doable and I can do that. You know? It's yeah. like it's like I can play that magical thing and I can play anything I want to. And so that's that's really what happens when you when you first pick up that instrument and play those songs, it's like you you have taken the magic and you've now you've you've you're the one wielding it, and that's just the that's the coolest feeling, you know. It's so po- powerful, you know. And then as you learn more and more songs, and people look at you and play, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, this guy can do this!" It just it just kind of goes to your head, you know. You're like, you know, I've got the music or something. But that's <laughs> but that's sort of the the thing. It's like it, it demystifies it in a way, and it it, it becomes something that you're, you're you have the power to do. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.